Section twelve of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section twelve. A Pilgrim on the Gila. Part one. Midway from Grant to Thomas comes Paymaster's Hill, not much after Cedar Springs, and not long before you sight the valley where the Gila flows. This lonely piece of road must lie three thousand miles from Washington. But in the holiday journey that I made they are near together among the adventures of mind and body that overtook me. For as I turned southward, our capital was my first stopping-place, and it was here I gathered the expectations of Arizona with which I continued on my way. Arizona was the unknown country I had chosen for my holiday, and I found them describing it in our National House of Representatives, where I had strolled for sightseeing, but stayed to listen. The Democrats were hot to make the territory a state, while the Republicans objected that the place had about it still too much of the raw frontier. The talk and replies of each party were not long in shaking off restraint, and in the sharp exchange of satire the Republicans were reminded that they had not thought Idaho and Wyoming unripe at a season when those territories were rumored to be Republican. Arizona might be Democratic, but neither cattle wars nor mine revolutions flourished there. Good order and prosperity prevailed. A member from Pennsylvania presently lost his temper declaring that gigantic generalities about milk and honey and enlightenment would not avail to change his opinion. Arizona was well on to three times the size of New York, had a hundred and thirteen thousand square miles. Square miles of what? The desert of Sahara was twice as big as Arizona, and one of the largest misfortunes on the face of the earth. Arizona had sixty thousand inhabitants, not quite so many as the town of Troy. And what sort of people? He understood that cactus was Arizona's chief crop, stage-robbing her most active industry, and the Apache her leading citizen. And then the boy orator of the Rio Grande took his good chance. I forgot his sallow face and black unpleasant hair and even his single gesture, that straining lift of one hand above the shoulder during the suspense of a sentence, and that cracking it down into the other at the full stop, endless as a pile-driver. His facts wiped any trick of manner from my notice. Indians? Stage-robbers? Cactus? Yes. He would add famine, drought, impotent law, daily murder. He could add much more, but it was all told in Mr. Pumpley's book, True as Life, Thirty Years Ago, doubtless the latest news in Pennsylvania. Had this report discouraged the gentleman from visiting Arizona? Why, he could go there today in a Pullman car by two great roads and eat his three meals in security. 
but eastern statesmen were too often content with knowing their particular corner of our map while a continent of ignorance lay in their minds at this stroke applause sounded beside me and turning i had my first sight of the yellow duster the bulky man that wore it shrewdly and smilingly watched the orator who now dwelt upon the rapid benefits of the railways the excellent men and things they brought to arizona the leap into civilization that the territory had taken let pennsylvania see those blossoming fields for herself said he those boundless contiguities of shade and a sort of cluck went off down inside my neighbor's throat while the speaker with rising heat gave us the tonnage of plums exported from the territory during the past fiscal year wool followed sock it to em limber jim murmured the man in the duster and executed a sort of step he was plainly a personal acquaintance of the speakers figures never stick by me nor can i quote accurately the catalogue of statistic abundance now recited in the house of representatives but as wheat corn peaches apricots oranges raisins spices the rose and the jasmine flowered in the boy orator's eloquence the genial antics of my neighbor increased until he broke into delighted mutterings such as he's a stud horse and put the kibosh on him and many more that have escaped my memory but the boy orator's peroration i am glad to remember for his fervid convictions lifted him into the domain of metaphor and cadence and though to be sure i made due allowance for enthusiasm his picture of arizona remained vivid with me and i should have voted to make the territory a state that very day with her snow-clad summits with the balm of her southern vineyards she loudly calls for a sister's rights not the isles of greece nor any cycle of cathay can compete with her horticultural resources her salt river her colorado her san pedro her gila her hundred irrigated valleys each one surpassing the shaded paradise of the nile where thousands of noble men and elegantly educated ladies have already located and to which thousands more like patient monuments are waiting breathless to throng when the franchise is proclaimed and if my death could buy that franchise i would joyfully boast such martyrdom the orator cracked his hands together in this supreme moment and the bulky gentleman in the duster drove an elbow against my side whispering to me at the same time behind his hand in a hoarse confidence deserted jericho california only holds the record on stoves now i'm afraid i do not catch your allusion i began but at my voice he turned sharply and giving me one short ugly stare was looking about him evidently at some loss when a man at his farther side pulled at his duster and i then saw that he had all along been taking me for a younger companion he had come in with and with whom he now went away in the jostle we had shifted places while his eyes were upon the various speakers 
and to him I seemed an eavesdropper. Both he and his friend had a curious appearance, and they looked behind them, meeting my gaze as I watched them going, and then they made to each other some laughing comment of which I felt myself to be the inspiration. I was standing absently on the same spot, still in a mild puzzle over California and the record on stoves. Certainly I had overheard none of their secrets, if they had any. I could not even guess what might be their true opinion about admitting Arizona to our union. With this last memory of our capital and the statesmen we have collected there to govern us, I entered upon my holiday, glad that it was to be passed in such a region of enchantment. For peaches it would be too early, and with roses and jasmine I did not importantly concern myself thinking of them only as a pleasant sight by the way. But on my gradual journey through Lexington, Bowling Green, Little Rock, and Fort Worth, I dwelt upon the shade of the valleys and the pasture hills dotted with the sheep of whose wool the boy orator had spoken. And I wished that our cold northwest could have been given such a bountiful climate. Upon the final morning of railroad, I looked out of the window at an earth which during the night had collapsed into a vacuum, as I had so often seen happen, before, upon more northern parallels. The evenness of this huge nothing was cut by our track's interminable scar, and broken to the eye by the towns which now and again rose and littered the horizon like boxes dumped by immigrants. We were still in Texas not distance from the Rio Grande, and I looked at the boxes drifting by, and wondered from which of them the boy orator had been let loose. Twice or three times upon this day of sand I saw green spots shining sudden and bright and biblical in the wilderness. Their isolated loveliness was herald of the valley land I was nearing each hour. The wandering Mexicans, too, bright in rags and swarthy in nakedness, put me somehow in mind of the Old Testament. In the evening I sat at whiskey with my first acquaintance, a Mr. Mowry, one of several Arizona citizens whom my military friend at San Carlos had written me to look out for on my way to visit him. My train had trundled on to the Pacific, and I sat in a house once more, a saloon on the platform, with an open door through which the night air came pleasantly. This was now the long-expected territory, and time for roses and jasmine to begin. Early in our talk I naturally spoke to Mr. Mowry of Arizona's resources and her chance of becoming a state. "'We'd have got there by now,' said he. "'Only Luke Jenks ain't half that interested in Arizona as he is in Luke Jenks.' I reminded Mr. Mowry that I was a stranger here, and unacquainted with the prominent people. "'Well, Luke's as near a hog as you can be and wear pants. Be with you in a minute,' added Mr. Mowry, and shambled from the room." This was because a shot had been fired in a house across the railroad tracks. "'I run two places,' he explained, returning quite soon from the house and taking up the thread of his whiskey where he had dropped it. 
two outfits, this side for tourists, the other pays better. I come here in sixty-two. I trust no one has been hurt, said I, inclining my head towards the farther side of the railroad. Hurt? My question for the moment conveyed nothing to him, and he repeated the word, blinking with red eyes at me over the rim of his lifted glass. No, nobody's hurt. I've been here a long while, and seen them as was hurt, though. Here he nodded at me depreciatingly, and I felt how short was the time that I had been here. The other side pays better, he resumed, as tourists mostly go to bed early. Six bits is about the figure you can reckon they'll spend, if you know anything. He nodded again, more solemn, over his whiskey. That kind's no help to business. I've been in this territory from the start, and Arizona ain't what it was. Them mountains are named from me. And he pointed out of the door. Mowry's Peak, on the map. With this last august statement, his mind seemed to fade from the conversation, and he struck a succession of matches along the table and various parts of his person. "'Has Mr. Jenks been in the territory long?' I suggested, feeling the silence weigh upon me. "'Luke? He's a hog. Him's the people's choice. But the people of Arizona ain't what they was. Are you interested in silver?' Yes, I answered, meaning the political question, but before I could say what I meant, he had revived into a vigor of attitude and a wakefulness of eye of which I had not hitherto supposed him capable. You come here, said he, and catching my arm, he took me out of the door and along the track in the night, and round the corner of the railroad hotel into view of more mountains that lay to the south. You stay here tomorrow, he pursued swiftly, and I'll hitch up and drive you over there. I'll show you some rock behind Helen's dome that'll beat any you struck in the whole course of your life. It's on the wood reservation, and when the government abandons the post, as they're going to do, there is no need for my entering at length into his urgence, or the plans he put to me for our becoming partners or for my buying him out and employing him on a salary, or buying him out and employing some other, or no one, according as I chose. The whole bright array of costumes in which he presented to me the chance of making my fortune at a stroke. I think that from my answers he gathered presently a discouraging but perfectly false impression. My eastern hat and inexperienced face—I was certainly young enough to have been his grandchild—had a little misled him, and although he did not in the least believe the simple truth I told him, that I had come to Arizona on no sort of business, but for the pleasure of seeing the country, he now overrated my brains as greatly as he had in the beginning despised them quite persuaded I was playing some game deeper than common, and either owned already or had my eye upon other silver mines. "'Pleasure of seeing the country, you say?' his small wet eyes blinked as he stood on the railroad track bareheaded, considering me from head to foot. "'All right. Did you say you're going to Globe?' "'No. To San Carlos, to visit an army officer.' 
"Carlos is on the straight road to Globe," said Mr. Mowry vindictively. "But you might as well drop any idea of Globe if you should get one. If it's copper you're after, there's parties in ahead of you." Desiring, if possible, to shift his mind from its present unfavorable turn, I asked him if Mr. Adams did not live between here and Solomonsville, my route to Carlos. Mr. Adams was another character of whom my host had written me, and at my mention of his name the face of Mr. Mowry immediately soured into the same expression it had taken when he spoke of the degraded Jenks. So you're acquainted with him. He's got mines. I've seen em. If you represent any eastern parties, tell em not to drop their dollars down old Adam's hole in the ground. He ain't the inexperienced juniper he looks. Him and me's been acquainted these thirty years. People claim it was Cyclone Bill held up the Ehrenberg stage. Well, I guess I'll be seeing how the boys are getting along. With that he moved away. A loud disturbance of chairs and broken glass had set up in the house across the railroad, and I watched the proprietor shamble from me with his deliberate gait towards the establishment that paid him best. He had left me possessor of much incomplete knowledge, and I waited for him, pacing the platform. But he did not return, and as I judged it inexpedient to follow him, I went to my bed on the tourist side of the track. In the morning the stage went early, and as our road seemed to promise but little variety, I could see nothing but an empty plain, I was glad to find my single fellow-passenger a man inclined to talk. I did not like his moustache, which was too large for his face, nor his too careful civility and arrangement of words but he was genial to excess and thoughtful of my comfort. "'I beg you will not allow my valise to incommode you,' was one of his first remarks, and I liked this consideration better than any Mr. Mowry had shown me. I fear you will detect much initial primitiveness in our methods of transportation,' he said. This again called for gracious assurances on my part, and for a while our polite phrases balanced to corners until I was mentally winded keeping up such a pace of manners. The train had just brought him from Tucson, he told me, and would I indulge? On this we shared and complimented each other's whiskey. "'From your flask I take it that you are a Gentile,' said he, smiling. "'If you mean tenderfoot,' said I, let me confess at once that flask and owner are from the east and brand new in arizona i mean you're not a mormon most strangers to me up this way are but they carry their liquor in a plain flat bottle like this are you a, a embarrassment took me as it would were I to check myself on the verge of asking a courteously disposed stranger if he had ever embezzled. "'Oh, I'm no Mormon,' my new friend said with a chuckle, and I was glad to hear him come down to reasonable English, but Gentiles are in the minority in this valley. "'I didn't know we'd got to the valleys yet,' said I, eagerly, connecting Mormons with fertility and jasmine. 
and I lifted the flaps of the stage, first one side and then the other, and saw the desert everywhere flat, treeless, and staring like an eye without a lid. "'This is the San Simon Valley we've been in all the time,' he replied. "'It goes from Mexico to the Gila, about a hundred and fifty miles.' "'Like this?' "'South it's rockier. Better put the flap down.' "'I don't see where people live,' I said, as two smoky spouts of sand jutted from the tires and strewed over our shoes and pervaded our nostrils. "'There's nothing.' yes there's one bush coming i fastened the flaps that's seven mile mesquite they held up the stage at this point last october but they made a mistake in the day the money had gone down the afternoon before and they only got about a hundred i suppose it was mormons who robbed the stage don't talk quite so loud the stranger said laughing the driver's one of them a mormon or a robber. Well, we only know he's a Mormon. He doesn't look twenty. Has he many wives yet? Oh, they keep that thing very quiet in these days, if they do it at all. The government made things too hot altogether. The bishop here knows what hiding for polygamy means. Bishop who? Meekum, I thought he answered me but was not sure in the rattle of the stage, and twice made him repeat it, putting my hand to my ear at last. Meekum! Meekum! he shouted. Yes, sir, said the driver. Have some whiskey, said my friend promptly, and when that was over and the flat bottle passed back, he explained in a lower voice, a son of the bishop's. Indeed! I exclaimed. So was the young fellow who put in the mail-bags, and that yellow-headed duck in the store this morning. My companion, in the pleasure of teaching new things to a stranger, stretched his legs on the front seat, lifted my coat out of his way, and left all formality of speech and deportment. And so's the driver you'll have to-morrow if you're going beyond Thomas, and the stock-tender at the sub-agency where you'll breakfast. He's a yellow-head, too the old man's postmaster, and owns this stage line. One of his boys has the mail contract. The old man runs the hotel at Solomonsville, and two stores at Bowie and Globe, and the store and mill at Thatcher. He supplies the military posts in this district with hay and wood, and a lot of things on and off through the year. Can't write his own name. Signs government contracts with his mark. He's sixty-four, and he's had eight wives. Last summer he married number nine. Rest all dead, he says, and I guess that's so. He has fifty-seven recorded children, not counting the twins born last week. Any yellowheads you'll see in the valley will answer to the name of Meekum as a rule, and the other type's curly black, like this little driver specimen. How interesting there should be only two varieties of Meekum, said I. Yes, it's interesting. Of course, the whole fifty-seven don't class up yellow or black curly, but if you could take account of stock, you'd find the big half of them do. Mothers don't seem to have influenced the type appreciably. His eight families, successive and simultaneous, 
cover a period of forty-three years, and yellow and black keeps turning up right along. Scientifically, the suppression of Mormonism is a loss to the student of heredity. Some of the children are dead. Get killed now and then, and die, too. Die from sickness. But you'll easily notice Meekums as you go up the valley. Old man sees all get good jobs as soon as they're old enough. Places em on the railroad, places em in town, all over the lot. Some don't stay. You couldn't expect the whole fifty-seven to be steady. But he starts em all fair. We have six in Tucson now, or five, maybe. Old man's a good father. They're not all boys. Certainly not. But more than half are. And you say he can't write? Or read, except print and he has to spell out that. But, my goodness, he's postmaster. What's that got to do with it? Young Meekums all read like anything. He don't do any drudgery. Well, you wouldn't catch me signing any contracts I couldn't read. Do you think you'd catch anybody reading a contract wrong to old Meekum? Oh, mamma, Why, he's king around here fixes the county elections and the price of tomatoes. Do you suppose any Tucson jury'll convict any of his Mormons if he says nay? No, sir. It's been tried. Why, that man ought to be in Congress. If he's like that, I don't consider him desirable, said I. Yes, he's desirable, said my friend roughly. Smart, can't be fooled, and looks after his people's interests. I'd like to know if that don't fill the bill. If he defeats justice, oh, rats! This interruption made me regret his earlier manner, and I was sorry the polish had rubbed through so quickly and brought us to a too precipitate familiarity. We're Western out here, he continued, and we're practical. When we want a thing, we go after it. Bishop Meekum worked his way down here from Utah, through desert and starvation, mostly afoot, for a thousand miles, and his flock today is about the only class in the territory that knows what prosperity feels like, and his laws are about the only laws folks don't care to break. He's got a brain. If he weren't against Arizona's being admitted— "'He should know better than that,' said I, wishing to be friendly. With your fruit exports and high grade of citizens, you'll soon be another California. He gave me an odd look. I am surprised, I proceeded amiably, to hear you speak of Mormons only as prosperous. They think better of you in Washington. Now, see here, said he, I've been pleasant to you, and I've enjoyed this ride, but I like plain talk. What's the matter? I asked and I don't care for Eastern sarcasm. There was no intention—I I don't take offense where offense is not intended. As for high-grade citizens, we don't claim to know as much as—I suppose it's New York you come from—gold bugs and mugwumps. If you can spare the time, said I, and kindly explain what has disturbed you in my remarks, we'll each be likely to find the rest of these forty miles more supportable. I guess I can stand it, said he, swallowing a drink. He folded his arms and resettled his legs, 
and the noisome hatefulness of his laugh filled me with regret for the wet-eyed Maori. I would now gladly have taken any amount of Maori in exchange for this, and it struck me afresh how uncertainly one always reckons with those who suspect their own standing. Till Solomonsville, said I, let us veil our estimation of each other. Once out of this stage, and the world will be large enough for both of us. I was wrong there, but presentiments do not come to me often. So I, too, drank some of my own whiskey, lighted a cigar, and observed with pleasure that my words had enraged him. Before either of us had devised our next remark, the stage pulled up to change horses at the first and last water in forty miles. This station was kept by Mr. Adams, and I jumped out to see the man, Mr. Mowry had warned me, was not an inexperienced juniper. His appearance would have drawn few but missionaries to him, and I should think would have been warning enough to any but an over-trustful child of six. "'Are you the geologist?' he said at once, coughing heavily, and when I told him I was simply enjoying a holiday, he looked at me sharply and spat against the corner of the stable. "'There's one of them fellers expected,' he continued, in a tone as if I need not attempt to deny that, and I felt his eye watching for signs of geology about me. I told him that I imagined the geologist must do an active business in Arizona. "'I don't hire him,' he exclaimed. "'They can't tell me nothing about mineral.' "'I suppose you have been here a long while, Mr. Adams?' "'There's just three living that come in ahead of—the cough split his last words in pieces. "'Mr. Mowry was saying last night—you've seen that old scamp, have you? "'By his mine behind Helen's dome?' "'My mirth at this turned him instantly confidential, "'and rooted his conviction that I was a geologist. "'That's right,' said he, tapping my arm. "'Don't you let him fool you. "'I guess you know your business.' Now, if you want to look at good-paying rock, thousands in sight, in sight, mind you. Are you coming along with us? called the little Meekum driver, and I turned and saw the new team was harnessed and he ready on his box, with the reins in his hands. So I was obliged to hasten from the disappointed Adams and climb back in my seat. The last I saw of him he was standing quite still in the welter of stable-muck, stooping to his cough, the desert sun beating on his old body, and the desert wind slowly turning the windmill above the shadeless mud hovel in which he lived alone. "'Poor old devil,' said I to my enemy, half forgetting our terms in my contemplation of Adams. "'Is he a Mormon?' My enemy's temper seemed a little improved. "'He's tried most everything except jail,' he answered, his voice still harsh. You needn't invest your sentiment there. He used to hang out at Twenty Mile in old Camp Grant days, and he'd slit your throat for fifty cents. But my sentiment was invested somehow. The years of the old-timers were ending so gray. Their heyday and carousels and happy-go-luckiness all gone, and in the remaining hours, what? Empty youth is such a grand, easy thing, and empty age so grim. "'Has Mowry tried everything, too?' I asked. 
including jail said my companion and gave me many entertaining incidents of Mowry's career with an ill-smelling saloon cleverness that put him once more into favorable humor with me, while I retained my opinion of him. And that uneducated sot, he concluded, that hobo with his record of cattle-stealing and claim-jumping, and his acquittal from jail through railroad influence, actually undertook to run against me last elections. My name is Jenks, Luke Jenks, territorial delegate from Arizona. He handed me his card. I'm just from Washington, said I. Well, I've not been there this session. Important law business has detained me here. Yes, they backed Mowry in that election. The old spittoon had quite a following, but he hadn't the cash. That gives you some idea of the low standards I have to combat. But I hadn't to spend much. This territory's so poor they come cheap. Seventy-five cents a head for all the votes I wanted in Bisbee, Nogales, and Yuma. And up here the bishop was my good friend. Holding office booms my business some, and that's why I took it, of course. But I've had low standards to fight. The territorial delegate now talked freely of Arizona's frontier life. It's all dead, he said, forgetting in his fluency what he had told me about Seven Mile Mesquite and last October. We have a community as high-toned as any in the land. Our monumental activity, and here he went off like a cuckoo clock, or the boy orator, reciting the glories of Phoenix and Salt River, and the future of silver, in that special dialect of platitudes which is spoken by our more talkative statesmen, and is not quite Latin, quite grammar, or quite falsehood. We're not all Maoris and Adamses, said he, landing from his flight. In a population of fifty-nine thousand, said I heartily, a stranger is bound to meet decent people if he keeps on. Again he misinterpreted me, but this time the other way, bowing like one who acknowledges a compliment, and we came to Solomonsville in such peace that he would have been astonished at my private thoughts, for I had met no undisguised vagabond nor out-and-out -out tramp whom I did not prefer to Luke Jenks, vote-buyer and politician. With his catchpenny plausibility, his thin-spread good-fellowship, and his New York clothes, he mistook himself for a respectable man, and I was glad to be done with him. I could have reached Thomas that evening, but after our noon dinner let the stage go on, and delayed a night for the sake of seeing the bishop hold service next day, which was Sunday, some few miles down the valley. I was curious to learn the Mormon ritual, and what might be the doctrines that such a man as the bishop would expound. It dashed me a little to find this would cost me forty-eight hours of Solomonsville, no Sunday stage running. But one friendly English-speaking family—the town was chiefly Mexican—made some of my hours pleasant, and others I spent in walking. Though I went early to bed, I slept so late that the ritual was well advanced when I reached the Mormon gathering. From where I was obliged to stand, I could only hear the preacher, already in the middle of his discourse. 
Don't empty your swill in the dooryard, but feed it to your hogs, he was saying. And anyone who knows how plainly a man is revealed in his voice could have felt instantly, as I did, that here was undoubtedly a leader of men. Rotten meat, rotten corn, spoiled milk, the truck that thoughtless folks throw away should be used. Their usefulness has not ceased because they're rotten. That's the error of the ignorant, who know not that nothing is meant to be wasted in this world. The ignorant stay poor because they break the law of the Lord. Waste not, want not. The children of the Gentiles play in the dooryard and grow sickly and die. The mother working in the house has a pale face and poison in her blood. She cannot be a strong wife. She cannot bear strong sons to the man. He stays healthy because he toils in the field. He does not breathe the tainted air rising from the swill in the dooryard. Swill is bad for us, but it is good for swine. Waste it by the threshold, it becomes deadly, and a curse falls upon the house. The mother and children are sick because she has broken a law of the Lord. Do not let me see this sin when I come among you in the valley. Fifty yards behind each house, with clean air between, let me see the well-fed swine receiving each day, as was intended, the garbage left by man. And let me see flowers in the dooryard, and stout, blooming children. We will sing the twenty-ninth hymn. The scales had many hours ago dropped from my eyes, and I saw Arizona clear, and felt no repining for roses and jasmine. They had been a politician's way of foisting one more silver state upon our Senate, and I willingly renounced them for the real thing I was getting, for my holiday already far outspangled the motliest dream that ever visited me, and I settled down to it as we settled down in our theatre chairs, well pleased with the flying pantomime. And when, after the hymn and a blessing, the hymn was poor stuff about wanting to be a Mormon and with the Mormon stand, I saw the bishop get into a wagon, put on a yellow duster, and drive quickly away. No surprise struck me at all. I merely said to myself, Certainly, how dull not to have foreseen that! And I knew that we should speak together soon, and he would tell me why California only held the record on stoves. But, oh, my friends, what a country we live in, and what an age, that the same stars and stripes should simultaneously wave over this and over Delmonico's. This, too, I kept thinking, as I killed more hours in walking the neighborhood of Solomonsville, an object of more false hope to natives whom I did not then observe. I avoided Jenks, who had business clients in the town. I went among the ditches and the fields, thus turned green by the channeled Gila, and though it was scarce a paradise surpassing the Nile, it was grassy and full of sweet smells, until after a few miles each way, when the desert suddenly met the pleasant verdure full in the face, and corroded it to death like vitriol. The sermon came back to me as I passed the little Mormon homes, and the bishop rose and rose in my esteem, though not as one of the children of light. 
that sagacious patriarch told his flock the things of weekday wisdom down to their level the cleanly things next to godliness to keep them from the million squalors that stain our gentile poor and if he did not sound much like the gospel he and deuteronomy were alike as two peas with him and moses thus in my thoughts i came back after sunset and was gratified to be late for supper jenks had left the dining-room and i ate in my own company which had become lively and full of intelligent impressions these i sat recording later in my journal when a hesitating knock came at my bedroom and two young men in cowboy costume entered like shy children endeavoring to step without creaking meekums my delighted mind exclaimed inwardly but the yellow one introduced the black curly one as mr follett who in turn made his friend mr cunningham known to me and at my cordial suggestions they sat down with increasing awkwardness first leaving their hats outside the door we seen you walkin around said one lookin the country over said the other fine weather for travelin said the first dusty though said the second perceiving them to need my help and coming to their point i said and now about your silver mine you've called the turn on us exclaimed yellow and black curly slapped his knee both of them sat looking at me laughing enthusiastically and i gathered they had been having whiskey this sunday night i confess that i offered them some more and when they realized my mildness they told me with length and confidence about the claims they had staked out on mount turnbull and there's lots of lead too said yellow i do not smelt said i or deal in any way with ore i have come here without the intention of buying anything you ain't the paymaster burst out black curly wrinkling his forehead like a pleasant dog yellow touched his foot course he ain't said curly with a swerve of his eye he ain't due what a while it always is waitin now the paymaster was nothing to me nor whom he paid for all i knew my visitors were on his roll and why yellow should shy at the mention of him and closely watch his tipsy mate i did not try to guess like every one i had met so far in arizona these two evidently doubted i was here for my pleasure merely but it was with entire good humor that they remarked a man had the right to mind his own business and so with a little more whiskey we made a friendly parting they recommended me to travel with a pistol in this country and i explained that i should do myself more harm than good with a weapon that any one handled more rapidly than i with my inexperience good night mr meekum i said follett corrected black curly cunningham said yellow and they picked up their hats in the hall and withdrew i think now those were their names the time was coming when i should hear them take oath on it yet i do not know i heard many curious oaths taken i was glad to see black curly in the stage next day not alone for his company but to give him a right notion of what ready money i had about me 
thinking him over and his absence of visible means of support and his interest in me i took opportunity to mention quite by the way that five or six dollars was all that i ever carried on my person the rest being in new york drafts worthless in any hands but mine and i looked at the time once or twice for him to perceive the cheapness of my nickel watch that the bishop was not his father i had indirect evidence when we stopped at thatcher to change horses and drop a mail sack and the mormon divine suddenly lifted the flap and inspected us he nodded to me and gave follett a message tell your brother wouldn't a father have said tom or dick that i've given him chances enough and he don't take em he don't feed my horses and my passengers complain he don't feed them though that's not so serious said he to me with a jovial wink but i won't have my stock starved you'll skip the station and go through to thomas with this pair he added to the driver in his voice of lusty command you'll get supper at thomas everything's moved on there from to-day that's the rule now then he turned to black curly who like the driver had remained cowed and respectful throughout the short harangue your brother could have treated me square and made money by that station tell him that and to see me by thursday if he's thinking of peddling vegetables this season i'll let him sell to fort Bowie. safford takes carlos and i won't have two compete in the same market or we'll be sinking low as eastern prices said he to me with another wink drive on now you're late he shut the flap and we were off quickly too quickly in the next few moments i could feel that something all wrong went on there was a jingle and snapping of harness and such a voice from the bishop behind us that i looked out to see him we had stopped and he was running after us at a wonderful pace for a man of sixty-four if you don't drive better than that said the grizzled athlete arriving cool and competent you'll saw wood for another year look how you've got em trembling it was a young pair and they stood and steamed while the broken gear was mended what did california hold the record in before the boy orator broke it said i getting out he shot at me the same sinister look i had seen in the capitol the look he must always wear i suppose when taken aback then he laughed broadly and heartily a strong pleasant laugh that nearly made me like him so you're that fellow oh, oh away down here now oh what's your business you won't believe me if i told you said i to his sudden sharp question me why i believe everything i'm told what's your name will you believe i haven't come to buy anybody's silver mine silver i don't keep it unloaded ten years ago before the rabbit died then you're the first anti-silver man i've met end of section twelve